three, two, one. Well, good morning. Welcome back to the Broadcast Retirement Network. I'm Jeff Snyder. This is BRN Weekly for Saturday, January 14th, 2023. Well, it's been another great week of shows of great topics. Of course, great guests. We kicked off the week with a discussion about access to private markets, improving retirement outcomes. Let's take a look. For the most part, a lot of American workers are not doing particularly well. They don't have a lot saved for retirement. You know, when we think about it, that already 20% today of, of older Americans rely on Social Security for 90% um, of their income in retirement. And unfortunately, as we look at our older uh, older workers today, many of them, you know, are not prepared and are looking at a retirement where they're going to run short of money. Uh, a lot of those who are close to retirement age, 55 to 64, you know, if they they may have about a little over 100,000 uh, in retirement, but if you think about that annuitized, it's maybe an additional $300 to supplement if if the only other income they have might be Social Security. The pandemic made things even worse for older Americans in terms of leaving the workforce um, and increasing their chances that they're likely to fall short. There's significant disparities by race and by gender with respect to access to retirement savings plans and the amount that that they have been able to actually save for retirement. Usually they have maybe 25% of what you would see uh, white workers who have had a chance to save for retirement. So again, you know, there's tremendous inequity in the system. And just generally, a lot of Americans don't have a lot, uh, a lot saved for retirement. And you know, we talk about how much people have saved for retirement for those who do have access, and it's still not great. But, you know, part of our the challenge in our retirement system is not just about the amount that people are able to save for retirement, because that really doesn't tell us much. At the end of the day, what does that mean in terms of supplemental income? So for those who do have savings for retirement, how are we going to help them? Because we have a system today that puts all the responsibility on the worker, not only to save, make the decision to save, how much to save, but then they have to figure out how to invest that money to grow over time and then how to manage that in terms of lifetime income. So it's much more of a challenge than beyond just helping more Americans save and save more for retirement. But how does our system also help to have that in, have those that savings grow and convert into lifetime income? And that relates to the work that we've now done most recently at Georgetown in collaboration with Willis Towers Watson to look at that particular element of the retirement cycle about taking those retirement savings and how those savings are ultimately invested to grow to try to maximize or improve significantly retirement income outcomes. However, you know, post financial crisis, although, you know, that's cherry picking, you're picking the low point um, in, in the cycle. If you just just look at after the financial crisis, um, public markets did quite well. Um, Inflation and short and long-term interest rates were held at all-time lows for an extended period of time, which meant that valuations and uh, for public equities and fixed income provided really strong returns, you know, over comparables such as cash. Um, so, really taking risk in a portfolio and being in be, just being exposed to that capital appreciation did phenomenal things for savers. That said, that that era of easy money um, has has ended, 
And um, and also as we look under the hood a little bit about that under that performance that we saw over the preceding 12 years, it was largely driven by a select group of companies that have come to dominate the tech industry. You pull the you know the top five six tech firms out of the benchmark, and the returns don't look nearly as attractive um, as having them be included. And so now, in recent markets where we've seen a change in this dynamic, where inflation is now higher and interest rates are now higher, companies that make little bits of money today with the promise of huge huge returns down the road are being discounted at that higher rate, and therefore you know, those valuations have, have become adjusted. And so these risk assets, and it's not just in equities and fixed income, it could be, you know, really any, any exposure to markets. We've seen what's happened to crypto assets where hmm. it was a, it was a free for all and everything just kept going up until now everything's being readjusted and people are wondering where the value is. It's happening across all markets. Um, and that's where we think that that private markets and, and other diversifying strategies have a role in portfolios for for savers. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, we've seen for a long time, as you point out, in the context of defined benefit plans, whether they be public or private, that for, for a long time, there's been a more significant allocation uh, to um, these uh, other asset classes, whether it be private equity, private credit, uh, hedge funds, and so on. Um, and also high net worth individuals have access to these types of asset classes. So from you know, basic fairness, when we look at today's defined contribution system and our savers within that system, why should they also have access to these same kinds of additional diversifying asset classes that we see within the defined benefit uh, and individual you know, uh, investor world today? Um, and with that in mind, and particularly what we're seeing in terms of the more recent market volatility, um, the inflation environment that we're in today, it certainly has been raising the questions and the challenges of those who manage these types of portfolios about how you can continue to to grow, uh, you know, have your have your portfolios grow and asking questions about whether or not this additional this notion of further diversification would be beneficial and the inclusion of these types of asset classes. So with that in mind, it's a question that's been coming up more and more. It's being examined more in the DC plan context. I think, you know, and David can certainly, uh, you know, add to what I'm saying here with respect to what we see uh, within the plan, within, um, within the plan market, that in the context of DC plans today, I think, you know, there is that consideration. And when we look at, again, the work that we've done here at Georgetown in collaboration with Willis Towers Watson looks at the inclusion of some of these other asset classes in the context of target date funds. Uh, and I think that we're starting to see, I think there is increasing amounts of customization of target date funds. And when you look at these other asset classes, there is the beginning of inclusion of small um, small percentages of these alternative asset classes in to things like their target date funds. At the same time, we see that where that's more likely to happen, and again, David can correct me if I'm wrong, but we do see that this kind of innovation and evolution with respect to the use of these more customized funds tends to be with larger plans rather than smaller plans. Um, but and uh, you know, I think we see maybe about 15% or or so of plans perhaps using these these types of alternative asset classes. 
So again, we're it's it's a it's an incremental change than an evolution and innovation that we're beginning to see in the DC market. It, again, historically we've seen it in the DB plan market. So, but again, it's been incremental um, with the inclusion of these these diversifiers and also uh, the not the percentage of plans that are beginning to use them. Definitely, where we've seen the interest has been in multi-asset solutions. So, as a component to the target date fund or the managed account solution, um, it, and there's that's where the there can have be an asset manager that can kind of manage the complexity of allocating to these alternative investments, whether that it be um, operational or liquidity management. Um, can be done at you know by a port you know a portfolio manager as opposed to an individual defined contribution participant. So definitely you know including in that in those multi asset portfolios is is where we've seen the interest and where we think it's appropriately placed. Um, some of these asset classes we don't want participants to be putting fifty percent of their portfolios into or give them the flexibility necessarily to do so. We want a skilled portfolio manager who understands how to build robust asset allocation uh, for participants to have the controls of that to help participants have the right portfolios without having to get an MBA in order to uh, reap the rewards. Next up, we discuss transitioning your parents' finances. Let's take a look. We have both in our family. We have a power of attorney. And because I think you need that because you might need it. Yeah. You know what I mean? You may not need it right this minute, but you may you may need it in the future. That, that, that's something that to always to know is that just because you have that power of attorney doesn't mean it's enacted, doesn't mean that you're using it. I've had a power of attorney for my dad for more than 30 years. I've never had to use it. I, it's still in, in the safe in my closet. Mm -hmm. I, I don't need it, but if I do, it's mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what I think a lot of people, especially older people think, oh, if I'm signing this power of attorney, that means that you're taking over everything. Mm -hmm. That's not the case. I mean, it could be depending on how the attorney writes it up, right. but that's usually not the case. You know, in our family, we did, we have both a power of attorney and mom put us on as signers of the account. So in many ways, that's been so helpful, not only because I, you know, I can, you know, ask questions of the bank and they'll, they'll talk to me because I am a signer on the account, but it's also allowed me to be able to set up an online access so that I can do I can do the online access for her bank account where we don't want it on her computer or her login. I have my own login. Right. So I can still get in and look and just, you know, double check that there's nothing funny showing up. Uh, so that's one thing that I think can be very beneficial is, you know, being able to be on that, that account as well. Yeah. And, well, and doing it more as a safety, you know, again, you have to, I think so many of these conversations are going to really be uh, dependent on your relationship with your parents, the expectations that you have of each other and, and, and how you appeal to them mm -hmm. as far as, you know, mom, I'm not trying to go in. I'm not writing checks on your account. I just want to be able to monitor it. I want to be able to make sure that when we need to transfer it, we can for you and those kinds of things. So coming from that perspective, I think gives her more peace of mind, if you will, that, okay, y'all are, y'all are protecting me, mm -hmm. not trying to take advantage, if right. that makes sense. But if something happens where you go into the hospital or something bad happens to you, then I have the authority to do anything financially to help take care of you. Mm -hmm. Wow. Gosh, where do you start with that? Because it is the the financial piece of caring for somebody is, is huge yeah. from everything from just if they are living in an independent living or an assisted living or a memory care kind of place, almost all of those, well, 
independent for sure, assisted living, except in rare cases, it's all private pay. Mm -hmm. So that is, that is, you know, you are paying for that care. And if you have a long-term care insurance policy, you know, those, that, that can help. My, but, my dad writes a check the first of every month for my mom's memory care and for his independent living care. And it's more money than he made in an entire year when he worked back in the sixties, when he first started. So, so every, every so, month he kind of so, takes so, that. So again, it, it's think about where he's from and that, yes, he can afford it now, but he remembers those days in the sixties when he made less than $10,000 a year. And he's like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm writing this much of a check. Every single month. Wow. And, and it, just, it's, it's something to get used to. That goes back to, to talking to your parents ahead of time to know not only what kind of money you have, but where does the money come from? Mm -hmm. Is the money all in the bank? Is the money coming from a pension that's guaranteed that you get X amount of dollars every single month or every single year? Is the money tied up in investments that could mm -hmm. fluctuate depending on mm -hmm. what's happening with the world market? Knowing that again, it's not like you're trying to get into the business. So you're going to find out, well, when you die, I'm going to get mm -hmm. this much money. It has nothing to do with that. It's more of a case that I want to make sure that you're living your life mm -hmm. the way mm -hmm. you deserve to live mm -hmm. and making sure that you have the money to live that way. And if, if, if you're in a, a financial situation or a, a crisis that you can't afford that, it's mm -hmm. good for me to know. Mm -hmm. So some of that definitely is in that planning ahead yes. and figuring out uh, how are we going to pay for things? Because there can, I mean, there can and always is uh, a change in the market from time to time. Yeah. So that definitely, I think, can can negatively affect when you look on paper. Uh, wow, mom lost X amount of money this last quarter. Ooh, you know, that kind of thing. It can, it can make you a little bit nervous. So when you think of bringing people in, whether it's somebody to care for them at home or even just a little extra assistance uh, in the, the, the community where they live, in, in our situation, my mom lives in independent living, but we do have a private caregiver that goes in a couple times a week, fills her pillbox for her and just kind of checks in on her, you know? So it's very minimal, uh, really. Uh, it's not a lot of care, but it gives me great peace of mind yeah. because I just know that her pillbox is being filled, but that's, and that, that in that situation, it, it often in a community, like an independent living uh, there are oftentimes private caregivers who kind of work in the building if, who are private, but work in the building and help multiple people. So that was, we were able to find somebody like that. Um, if you don't have that situation, there are agencies that provide caregivers that can, and they can be, those can be a great resource because they're going to vet the people. They're in charge of finding the people mm -hmm. and vetting them and making sure that somebody shows up yeah. when they're supposed to. Because uh, when you do have a private caregiver, you are dependent on if somebody wants to take off for Christmas or they get sick or something like that. They're in their twenties. So they are. And yeah, we've been more open with them about, about the future, about where we, where we could live someday and, and, and our financial situation. And, and it, it, it makes things better because you're more open. And and I'm not saying that when they're at an early age that you need to be more open about things. But as they get older, as the kids mm -hmm. get older, you need to be more open about things just so that they're informed and that they're, they're ready mm -hmm. and that they're not surprised by anything. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I agree. Well, we're halfway through the best segments of the week. We come back, we'll take a look at the other half. You're going to want to stay tuned right here on BRN Weekly. Imagine a new television network that will make you richer, healthier, and in control of your financial future.
This network is for the policewoman in Nashville, Tennessee, the baker in Dubuque, Iowa, the teacher in Lexington, Kentucky. We want to make the idea of savings and retirement culturally relevant. But what do you see as a defining issue of the midterms? Especially for the smaller businesses, I mean, they are the lifeblood of the American economy. Featuring exclusive interviews, current affairs, and docu-series. 33 yeah. years old, you retired early. The philosophy is money only matters if it helps you live a life that you love. But you gotta start thinking about retirement as soon as you get in. The Broadcast Retirement Network will drive very high engagement with premium partnerships. So this isn't retirement and savings for your parents or grandparents. This is for all Americans. And we're gonna change the way you think about money. Welcome to the next frontier of retirement and savings. This is BRN, the Broadcast Retirement Network. Are you stuck with a low credit score? A credit report and score that's causing you to be denied credit or pay higher interest rates than others for the same things? Then do what Terrence did and call Credit Repair for your free credit evaluation to help restore your credit. I started thinking about buying a new house and my score wasn't where I needed it to be. I called and spoke with one of the representatives and we just had a good conversation and I, I liked what he was saying. Just one call for his free credit evaluation was all it took to start back on the track to repairing his credit. I'm seeing the deletions and I'm getting the report so I know something's being done. It does make a difference to me. All it takes is one call to get started. Credit repair has given me a second chance to have a better credit score. Don't let a low credit score hold you back another day. Do what Terrence did and make the call for your free credit evaluation. Call 800-819-4152. That's 800-819-4152. Again, 800-819-4152. Welcome back. And next up, we discussed paths to improving retirement security for non-traditional workers. Let's take a look. We asked non-traditional workers about a six possible options. And we found that uh, every single option received more positive than negative responses. Uh, but we also had a lot of people who said they didn't know whether they'd participate in that option. And you can sort of imagine what's going on. They've, they're presented with something for the first time, and they're not sure how it would work for them. Uh, the option you mention is attractive because at least 70% of non-traditional workers are paid electronically yep. at least some of the time. You know, the money's deposited to their bank account or it's, uh, they receive it through a payment app. And something like 90% eventually move their money to a bank account. So we asked about these transfers in different ways. We asked, uh, first of all, would, would you like to have your bank transfer the money to an IRA, say? And found that about half of workers, uh, non-traditional workers, uh, were interested in the option. Um, and about a quarter were not. Um, but again, you had a, a large number who were not sure. And yeah. FinTech is amazing. Um, there are already some apps out there that will 
go to your bank account and then move money to, say, an IRA they've set up for you. That's already available. Um, and about 60% of um, non-traditional workers told us that they'd like to uh, investigate this option. Well, we realized that saving through your tax filing might be the easiest route for many people. We conducted our survey in uh, the spring of 2020 when there was a saver's credit. And the saver's credit um, was uh, uh, under the saver's credit, you could instruct the government to deposit the amount of your refund into your IRA, your um, 529 account, your ABLE account if you're disabled. The credit amount was limited uh, by the amount of your refunds, so many people did not get the full amount they were entitled to, the full you know, percentage of their, of their savings. Uh, but recently, very recently, Congress uh, modified the saver's credit um, to create a saver's match. And with the saver's match, uh, the federal government will match uh, low to moderate income workers' deposits into their retirement accounts um, with set percentages. And the match is not restricted by the amount of the refund. You get the full match that you're entitled to. And Which, Allison, you know, should be an, an, an excellent um, aid to people uh, and incentive for them to save for retirement. Uh, we're excited about this as an incentive to help people, um, non-traditional workers and, and all workers, really, who, who meet the income requirements. Our option four uh, describes a scenario where your representative body, it might be a trade union or the trade uh, chamber of commerce or a professional group, offers a plan and you participate in this plan. And uh, option five describes uh, what are known as PEPs and MEPs. These are pooled employer plans or multiple employer plans. and the way we look at it is multiple um, self-employed workers could join together in a plan. Both of these seek to build a, you know, a large enough group of workers to reduce administrative and investment and other costs. That's the goal of both of these plans. Um, and again, you know, for the MEPS and PEPs, Again, we had, you know, more than half of workers were interested in this plan, um, but we had a quarter who said they were, were not interested, and then we had another quarter who said, we don't know. And, you know, again, being presented with this, you know, as part of, uh, you know, a survey with multiple plans, you can, you can kind of see where they're coming from. Small differences in fees can really build up over the course of your your work life or your retirement and reduce what you have available in retirement by tens of thousands of dollars. And Pew has done some work on this. It's on our website. But uh, let's see, for the auto IRAs, uh, often the states that have passed auto IRA legislation have put caps on the fees. Mm -hmm. um, but for the private sector solutions, for example, the, the FinTech 
apps or the bank transfers, this is where participants would really need to be aware of the fees. They might need to do research. It's potentially an area where education could be helpful, um, not the solution, but could, could help people keep an eye out for, for high fees and, and reduce um, the, the share of their savings that are subject to them. Well, in our office, we're interested in multiple aspects of this issue. Uh, it, one line of our work is to encourage and help and provide technical assistance to states that are considering auto IRAs and help them understand what the programs are uh, and, and implement uh, solid programs. Uh, another line of work we're looking forward to doing is figuring out how to incorporate non-traditional workers in auto IRAs. What are the issues for reaching them? What are the issues for um, automated contributions, for example? And you know, would 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 automating contributions work for non-traditional workers who have volatile incomes? Um, what is the role for a, you know, a, a separate um, rainy day fund so that they wouldn't need to draw on their retirement savings? Things like that. Um, putting these ideas into practice is, is where we're going next. And finally, we discussed gasoline prices in 2023. What will they look like? Let's take a look. Yeah, so there's still an incredible amount of uncertainty in kind of global energy markets right now. Um, and obviously that kind of bleeds into the U.S. energy market as well. Um, and so those factors that we're kind of looking at, the big one right now that a lot of people in the market are kind of talking about is fears of recession, uh, fears of kind of lower economic activity. Uh, that really does kind of push back into energy consumption um, in kind of both the gasoline and diesel and crude oil worlds and stuff. And so, um, and that's also kind of a big factor that's been kind of driving uh, lower crude oil prices in the second half of the year is concerns about a potential recession in the near term. Uh, and so when we look at when we're looking next year, you know, we're seeing the kind of crude oil price, the lower crude oil prices in response to those concerns. We're expecting that to uh, continue at least to a degree, which should help to bring down retail prices uh, for gasoline and diesel. Um, we're expecting lower consumption as well. Um, the lower consumption, again, is in part, you know, people reacting to high prices, but also broadly, uh, you know, changes in U.S. Uh, in U.S. driving patterns and the cars that people kind of drive are becoming more and more efficient. And that contributes to less and less gasoline demand. And so we're seeing, we're expecting uh, lower motor gasoline demand on average uh, next year. And that's contributing as well to uh, lower prices next year. And then another big factor contributing to our outlook for prices is uh, some expansions in refinery capacity, both in the United States and globally, um, which should in theory help to reduce that kind of high refining margin between the price of real oil and the price of gasoline. So, I mean, we don't put together a sort of public facing forecast on our, uh, you know, on a, like a, a U.S. fleet composition or anything, but broadly, I mean, vehicle penetra uh, electric vehicle pen penetration into the overall U.S. vehicle fleet, uh, you know, it's increasing. Um, definitely, my colleagues that work on our kind of longer term outlook, uh, it's a major factor uh, in in U.S. motor consumption and U.S. motor gasoline consumption. Uh, that's going to really that we do think you know it, it is contributing to longer term downward pressure on uh, petroleum motor fuels consumption. Um, but even like you said, even if it's even if you're just looking at 
petroleum consuming cars, right? Gasoline cars. Uh, they're still, they're also growing more efficient than they used to be. Uh, and you know, that, that efficiency doesn't always show up at the national level immediately, right? If there's a new cafe standard that comes out, you know, people still have to, you don't, you don't buy a new car every time a new emission standard comes out. Uh, so that kind of that fleet turnover takes some time to really work its way. And so even just efficiency standards changes that might've happened five years ago are still uh, working their way into the kind of current consumption level. So, I mean, EIA is a policy neutral agency. We don't really recommend certain policies for policy to take. And, you know, we don't try and say this was good or bad. Um, broadly, I mean, things like uh, things that expand the amount of crude oil available, uh, whether that's, you know, globally or in the U.S., um, you know, that is in the longer term going to contribute to lower crude oil prices. Um, but that's only that is only on the supply side, right? So on the demand side, which for crude oil can be very uh, sensitive to a lot of global factors, uh, you know, has been a kind of big part of what's been pulling down um, prices this in the kind of second half of the year, in addition to a lot of the stuff uh, on the supply side, right? So those kind of have been working together. Um, you know, supply disruptions, things like OPEC cuts, those can, can those can or those are intended to at least contribute to higher crude oil prices. Uh, on the refinery side, you know, building people building more refineries, or I guess more accurately in the U.S., expanding existing refineries. Uh, you know, those projects should help to reduce the margin on gasoline, but they also take an incredibly long period of time um, to come online just because it's a very large financial decision for companies to make. Uh, you know, they're very complex projects that have to kind of get designed and approved. Uh, and so, uh, you know, a lot of the, the, the bigger projects that we're seeing coming online uh, in 2023, you know, those have been in the works for a while, right? It's not like they saw, you know, prices doing what they were doing last year and decided they were going to add 300,000 barrels per day of refining capacity. Um, but, you know, when those projects come online, they should be contributing to uh, increasing the availability of gasoline compared to where we were at last year. And that wraps up this episode of BRN Weekly. Have a topic of interest, someone you think we should talk to, then drop us a line. And don't forget, for all the latest security news and lifestyle, wellness, finance, tech, so much more, and all in one place, check out today's edition of our daily newsletter, The Morning Pulse. Want to search our archives, check out our latest content, we'll visit our website, and of course, all of our streaming partners. We're back again tomorrow for BRN Sunday. We'll be breaking down all the key events and topics for the week with members of the media, financial services, academia, and government. So you're going to want to stay tuned. Until then, I'm Jeff Snyder. Stay safe, keep on saving, and don't forget, roll with the changes. Now is your opportunity to co-create content around any topic on the first lifestyle and wellness network. Reach a global audience through our platform and co-own exclusive branded content. All of our programs are available on demand and also as audio-only podcasts so you can take us on the go. Broadcast Retirement Network, available anytime, anywhere, and on any device. Tax audits, tax liens, 
wage garnishments. Every day we hear stories like this about good folks who are simply struggling to pay their bills. Each of them are living a frightening IRS tax nightmare, and they are afraid it will destroy their lives. I'm a divorced single mom, and my ex-husband left me and the kids with a lot of unpaid bills, including unpaid taxes. I was really starting to show my stress on my kids because the IRS had sent me a letter demanding a huge payment from me. I couldn't afford it. So then the IRS was threatening to garnish my wages. I'm already living paycheck to paycheck. That would have put me over the edge financially. It truly seemed hopeless, but then a friend at work told her to call the tax relief line. The people at the tax relief line, they told me about something called innocent spouse relief. They worked it out so that all of the taxes from my ex are not my problem. I don't know how that works and, and I don't care. All I care about is that I don't owe the IRS a dime and they are not going to take my paycheck. Even if it seems hopeless, you should call the number on your screen right now. There is absolutely no cost for the call or the consultation. You are under no obligation. If you are worried that the IRS could garnish your wages, seize your assets, even take your home, call us right now. The tax relief line is here to help you. Now you have a knowledgeable, professional team of tax experts that are ready to negotiate with the IRS and fight for you to save you money. The Tax Relief Line's professionals have successfully negotiated thousands of cases, reducing and sometimes even eliminating the tax debt for their clients. It's very easy to get started. Simply call the number on your screen right now. You don't have to live in fear anymore. The call and the consultation are free.